you've been around the church for any great length of time, you'll know that together we've got some pretty substantial dreams. Among other things, uh, we dream, don't we, of the, the day when Jesus will be the most talked about person in the whole of Birmingham. Heard that one before? Yep, you, you have. You're familiar with that. Now, I'm not going to ask for any audience participation at this point. I'm not after a show of hands. But I'm guessing that a number of us secretly think that will probably never happen. And even for those of us who may be slightly more positive than that, let's be honest, we still haven't got a clue how it's going to happen. I mean, let's be honest, it's very hard, isn't it, talking about Jesus to people who are not the least bit interested in what we have to say. And although the accounts that we've been reading over uh, the last few months in the early chapters of the book of Acts, the accounts of the launch of the first church and the spread of the gospel, they are pretty stunning, it does all seem like a different world to the one we live in, doesn't it? I mean, when was the last time that you personally saw thousands saved in an individual day? Anyone seen that? No. When was the last time that you had a random knock on the door and a complete stranger was standing there saying an angel had visited them and instructed them to come and knock on your door and ask you to explain the message of Jesus to them? That ever happened to you? Not yet. I like your faith. Not yet. The, the first section of Acts, I think, describes a world that we are not so familiar with. It describes a world where everyone seems to already have some kind of belief in God. And every presentation of the gospel kind of assumes the listeners, although they're not Christians yet, at least believe the Bible. Which is why I would suggest the passage we're going to be looking at today is incredibly useful for us. Because what we're going to be seeing today is the first ever recorded occasion where Christians speak to people who not only don't believe the Bible at all, but probably also know nothing about it. If you want to follow along, we're going to be in Acts chapter 14. It's a chapter that paints a really helpful picture of how to present the gospel, how to speak of Jesus, how to share our faith in a place where people believe lots of different things, but certainly don't believe in the Bible and don't believe in God. How do you share the gospel? How do you share the good news about Jesus in a situation like that? Well, there are four things I think we can learn from this passage. And just for the, the sake of integrity, I've got to say, uh, I once listened to a talk by a guy called Tim Keller uh, on this passage, and I'm nicking his four points. So uh, if you don't like it, it's his fault. Uh, if you do like it, well, thank him. So here we go. Four points. Here's the first one. How do, how do you share the gospel? How do you speak of Jesus in a place like Birmingham? Number one, love those in need. Start by loving those in need. Let's pick up the story in verse eight. While they were at Lystra, Paul and Barnabas came upon a man with crippled feet. He'd been that way from birth, so he had never walked. He was sitting and listening as Paul preached, looking straight at him Paul realized he had faith to be healed. So Paul called to him in a loud voice, stand up! And the man jumped to his feet and started walking. Just pause there. I don't think we need to actually spend a great deal of time on this particular point because I think we probably already get it. But it's at least worth pointing out that again and again and again through the Gospels and now we're seeing in the story of the birth of the church in Acts we repeatedly see that words and deeds go together. 
So Jesus didn't just preach, he also healed the sick and raised the dead. He ministered in word and in deed. We see the same thing with Peter in the first chapters of Acts. He preached and he also healed people. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles, if you remember, preached the word but they also wanted to take care of the poor widows in the community. So they created this other separate group of leaders who were exclusively commissioned to do deed ministry. This, this instance, it, it wasn't miraculous, it wasn't people being healed, but it was people being provided for. The point was, word and deed go together. If you're around, when we're looking at Philip going to Samaria, you'll perhaps remember how he preached but we're also told in that passage that he healed a lot of people and cast out a bunch of demons. And it says when people saw his deeds, they listened to his words. When they saw what he did, they listened to what he said. And here in this passage today, we see Paul doing the same thing. Paul preaches and he heals. Words and deeds both go together. When people saw the deeds, they listened to the words. Listen, in a place like this, in a place like Birmingham, I don't think words by themselves are really going to cut it. I think we desperately, desperately, desperately need miraculous deeds that act as signs pointing people to the truth of our message, whether that's praying for the sick and seeing people healed. And I don't know about you, but I'm praying we see much more of that. And not just in meetings like this, I'm praying for it when we gather like this, but when we go out from here in our normal everyday life that we're encountering people who need healing and in Jesus' name we're speaking healing into their lives, praying for much more of that. I also believe that it's to do with practical needs being met, whether it's giving our money, our time away for the care of others. We already as a church do a whole lot of that. I'm praying we get to do much more of that in this city in the years to come. It's very simple. We must do ministry in word and in deed as well, because when they go together, they give each other credibility. So first of all, we're supposed to embody the gospel by pouring ourselves out for the needs of others. How else? Do we share the gospel in a place like Birmingham? Well, second point is this. We need to identify the idols. Really, this is kind of the heart of what Paul does here in this story. Let's rejoin it in verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, this healing, they shouted in their local dialect, these men are gods in human form. They decided that Barnabas was the Greek god Zeus and that Paul was Hermes since he was the chief speaker. Now, the temple of Zeus was located just outside the town, so the priest of the temple and the crowd brought bulls and wreaths of flowers to the town gates, and they prepared to offer sacrifices to the apostles. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard what was happening, they tore their clothes in dismay and ran out among the people, shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We are merely human beings just like you. We've simply come to bring you the good news that you should turn from these worthless things and turn to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. In the past, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, but he never left them without evidence of himself and his goodness. For instance, he sends you rain and good crops and gives you food 
and joyful hearts. Now, the first thing I suggest we, we need to notice right away is how absolutely different this gospel presentation is from anything we've seen before in the book of Acts. For example, in the previous chapter, in chapter 13, Paul preaches to a bunch of people at the synagogue, people who believe the Scriptures, and to them he says, brothers, listen, we're here to proclaim that through this man Jesus there is now forgiveness for your sins. Everyone who believes in him is made right in God's sight, something the law of Moses could never do. So when he was talking in the synagogue to people who were familiar with and believed in the Scriptures, he was saying, look, you know you need forgiveness because you try to obey the law of Moses, but you're not completely obeying the law. But through Jesus Christ, you can receive the forgiveness that you know you need. But in this passage in Acts 14, Paul doesn't say any of that stuff. He doesn't use the word sin. He doesn't use the word law. He doesn't even quote from the Scriptures. So here's the question. How do you show people they need Jesus if they don't believe in the law of God, they don't believe in a God of judgment, they certainly don't feel guilty before that God, don't believe in heaven and hell, certainly don't believe the Bible. How do you show people they need Jesus when they don't believe any of that stuff? Well, let's look at what Paul does. First of all, he doesn't say, you're a bunch of sinners and you need forgiveness. He doesn't say that. He doesn't go there. What he effectively says is, you are enslaved by idols and you need a new master. He says, these gods you worship, Hermes, Zeus, they are worthless. You notice that word in the passage? Worthless. They're they're empty. They're deceptive. They are ineffective. They don't work for you. It's like they promise you fulfillment but at the end of the day, just leave you feeling empty. But we're here bringing you good news. You can be rescued, you can be set free, you can be liberated from those worthless things. In fact, your only hope is to turn from these worthless things and live and serve for the living God. That helps to understand that Paul was speaking into a culture that was very similar to ours where there was no one supreme God. There were lots of different gods that people followed, and you worshipped and sacrificed the God that you thought could help you the most. For example, if you're a soldier, you sacrifice to the God of war. If you're a merchant, you sacrifice to the God of commerce. If you're a farmer, you would sacrifice to the God of agriculture. There was a God of love and beauty and romance. There was a God of music and art. Caesar himself was as God. And when you sacrifice to one of these gods, you're effectively saying, this thing is where my hope lies. This thing is my meaning in life. I'm sacrificing to this, hoping that it satisfies me. And here's what Paul's saying. He's saying all of these things you sacrifice for are dead, but let me introduce you to the living God. These things that you are giving your lives for, they're powerless. They haven't got the power to help you, but the true God made heaven and earth and everything in it. He really is powerful. That these gods are empty, that they promise way more than they can ever deliver for you. They always take from you more than they actually give you. But my God, the true God, he's the complete opposite. 
Paul's saying, look, my God gives you way more than he ever requires from you. I, I want you to see is that even though you haven't acknowledged him at any point in your life, ultimately all the joy you know in your life is from him. Every good gift that you kind of take for granted, every good thing in life you enjoy, it's ultimately a gift from him. And he's been doing this even though you don't know him, even though you don't acknowledge him. Don't you see, he's the complete opposite of all of these other gods that you're living for and worshipping and sacrificing to. In a nutshell, to try and translate what Paul's saying into our context, the message is, even if you claim you're not religious, even if you say you don't worship any god, I mean, I don't see the parallels between them and us, the truth is, in our heart of hearts, all of us are living for something. In some way, all of us are sacrificing for something. Everybody's saying something is their meaning in life. And whatever that thing is, in many respects, that is your master. I mean, if you're living for love and romance, you're effectively controlled by the people that you desperately want to love you. If you're living for money or for your career, you certainly don't control yourself. You're controlled by power or by money because you have to do anything it takes to get it and then hold on to it. Listen, you're not in control of your life. The reality is you're always being mastered by whatever you are living for. And then having said all of that, Paul says, I want you to know my God, the true living God, is the only one who, if you serve him, will liberate you, will give you freedom. All of these other gods, they're worthless. They take more than they give. But the true God, if you get him, if you understand him, if you know him personally, he will satisfy you. I mean, he already fills your heart with joy. Just think what it'd be like if you actually turned to him and knew him. That's what Paul's saying here in this passage. His point is simple, and I think it is just as relevant for us today. He wants people to see that the true Lord is the only master who, if you get him, if you know him, will satisfy you and not leave you feeling empty. And if you fail him, he'll still forgive you. Let's be real. Other stuff you give your life for, those things aren't particularly forgiving. Give your life for your career, it will never forgive you. If you're living for your career and and you don't get the career you want, it will punish you the rest of your life. It will beat you up. But my God, the true God is the only master who became a servant and died so we could be forgiven and set free. Now, of course, Paul still believes that all people are subject to the law of God and are judged if they don't obey it. He says as much in Romans 1 and 2. I'm sure if the people in the crowd here began moving toward him, he would have taken the time to explain all that stuff as well. But he starts where people are at. He doesn't just beat people over the head with things they don't believe and understand and say, well, you ought to. He starts where they are. He takes something in their own belief system and shows them on the basis of their own system of beliefs they still desperately need Jesus. Listen, if you're trying to talk to people about faith, and out of the blue they surprise you and say, please tell me, why do I need Jesus? If you say, well, you know, you are disobeying the Ten Commandments. For example, you're having sex outside of marriage. 
You're doing this, you're doing that, you're, you're spending all of your money on yourself. I know you lie and cheat. Therefore, you need Jesus because you need to be forgiven. What's the person going to say? They're probably going to say, well, everyone has to decide what's right or wrong for themselves. It, you, you can't go imposing your moral standards on me. But if instead of saying that, you say, look, everyone's living for something. And whatever you're living for, it is mastering you in some way. It's the reason why perhaps you're angry at times. It's the reason you're, you're disappointed. It's the reason why you have this kind of gnawing ache inside of you that there must be something more. The, the thing you're building your whole life around, that thing you love most in life, you, you might not sit quite this way at the moment, but it's actually like a slave driver. It's controlling you. There's no freedom in it. But I know a true God Jesus Christ, who's the only God who, if you get him, if you know him, will satisfy you, really satisfy you. And if you fail him, and I tell you, I've failed him so many times, he still forgives you. If you say that, it doesn't mean that they're going to kind of fall to their knees there and then and repent and turn to Jesus in faith, but inwardly they are likely to be thinking, well, it seems like you're putting your finger on something that is wrong with me. Maybe I need to think about this. Maybe I need to consider this a bit more. And that's what Paul's doing here in this passage. He identifies their idols. How do you share the gospel? How do you speak of Jesus in a place like Birmingham? Number one, what do you do? Love those in need. Care for those in need. Number two, identify the idols. Number three, endure the hardships. Have a listen to what Paul says near the end of this passage when he's trying to encourage the church. Verses 21 and 22, after preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia, where they strengthened the believers. They encouraged them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Now, just to say, I don't think that means that your suffering makes you qualified for heaven, that you kind of earn your way in through suffering, because that would pretty much contradict what Paul teaches in the rest of the New Testament. So, it can't mean that. So, what does it mean? I think it means at least two things. First of all, in one sense, I think it means we don't grow into Christ-likeness we don't grow in spiritual maturity. We, we, we don't grow closer to God without hardship. It's like the things that actually give you joy and peace and comfort in the long run are dependence on God. Humility before Him, walking closely with Him, the ability to pray, stuff like that. But often, I don't think we find those things because we never spend enough time with God to find those things unless we hit problems and difficulties and challenges. It's like hardships, difficult as they are, do have the potential to push us right into the arms of God rather than only ever playing around the outside, never really getting to know Jesus more for who He is and over time becoming more like Him. That's the first thing. But I also think it means something more than that. I think the way we suffer models something powerful to those who are watching our lives. 
Some of the early church fathers, when they were writing to unbelievers about why they should become followers of Jesus, they'd say stuff like, look at us, we, we suffer and die so well. It's like they face death with a certain poise and grace and joy and lack of vindictiveness that stunned everyone else who saw it. And so, how we handle suffering goes a long way towards whether we ourselves become more and more like our King. It also has a tremendous amount to do with whether other people find the kingdom as they observe the way we live. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Our modern secular culture has got to be the very worst, the very worst culture in the history of all of the world for equipping people to handle suffering well. Because our culture says, no one has the right to tell you what's right or wrong. You have to decide for yourself what's right or wrong for you. And the whole meaning of life is to have the freedom to choose the life that makes you happy. Happiness is the end goal and you make all the decisions to get yourself there. Now just think about that for a moment. If that is the pinnacle of life, if that's the meaning, what it's all about, then suffering can never, ever, ever, ever be a part of that story. It can only ever be an unpleasant interruption of that story. The one thing it can never be is meaningful. It it can't be something we can face and have it make us better in some way. Really, it's nothing but a disruption of what we want and what we feel we deserve. So the only thing to do when suffering comes is to run away, to try to escape it, to try to avoid it. And if we can't escape it, then we just melt down. But what Christianity tells us is Jesus himself suffered. Not that you might never suffer, not that you might now live a, a blissful, completely trouble-free existence. He doesn't promise us that, but he does say that when you suffer, he'll walk with it, with you, through it. And when you suffer, if you walk with him through it, you'll become more like him which is the best place to be. So there's an ability on the one hand to say, okay, I don't have to wear a mask. I don't have to put on a brave face and pretend everything's going okay. I can cry, I can weep, because I don't have to kind of prove myself through suffering or ignore it or run away from it. I can be real about what's going on in my life. On the other hand, I know that Jesus suffered before me. I know he's with me right now. So I know that if I believe in him in some way, and I don't understand it, and part of me doesn't want it, but in some way the suffering is going to turn me into something better. And though it's tough, it forces me to rely on him and proves that he is enough for me. Listen, if Christians don't look any different from the people around us when it comes to how we deal with hardships, if we don't have grace through it, and patience, and, and joy in our hardships that everyone else finds surprising and amazing, then we're never going to fully reach the people around us who don't share our faith. The way we handle hardship can be a powerful testimony to the fact that our God is the best. It's challenging, but it's true. That's the third thing. Here's the fourth thing. The fourth and final thing, with no other sub-points you'll be relieved to hear. Fourthly, How do we reach a city like Birmingham? Fulfill the longings. Fulfill the longings in the people around us. Look again at verse 11. Whole riot kicks off. 
Because when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in their local dialect, these men are gods in human form. Mainly that's a mistake. Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're ripping their clothes and saying, no, 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 we're just human beings like you. So mainly it's a mistake. But think about the irony of this. Actually, there is a God who came down to us in human form, isn't there? Was the crowd totally wrong? Mainly wrong. But I do want you to notice something here. I think the reason they believed these guys were gods was because of the legends in their culture. Every single culture is filled with legends about gods appearing, legends about heroes, legends about all sorts of supernatural happenings. Every single culture has its fairy stories or its myths, its legends. And they're filled with all sorts of bizarre and crazy and strange things. Yet in many ways, they're all after the same thing. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings and grew up in Birmingham, so one of our own, he wrote a very interesting essay called On Fairy Stories. Now, hear me out on this. Some of you are already switching off. Uh, His observation was that in spite of the fact that we live in a culture that doesn't believe in God and certainly doesn't believe in fairy stories, doesn't believe in the supernatural, doesn't believe in miracles, doesn't believe in anything like that, we are still obsessed with stories that are based on fantasy. And Tolkien, in his essay, concluded that human beings have four recurring longings that realistic fiction just can't satisfy. It's almost like we have an itch that realistic fiction can't scratch. See if you recognize any of these four things. He says, number one, human beings want to be able to escape time and death, recurring themes in fantasy stories. Number two, human beings have always been utterly fascinated by the idea of communicating with non-human beings, with life out there somewhere. Number three, we love stories that tell us that once you get a love that heals everything, you'll never, ever, ever have to lose it. Number four, we want to see the complete triumph of good over evil. Now, realistic fiction can't do any of that because we don't believe in any of that stuff nowadays. We don't believe any of that is really ever going to happen because the secular world tells you this life is all there is. There's no such thing as the supernatural. There are no spirits. There's nothing. And so when you die, you rot. That's it. So you'll never have love without parting. You'll never be able to escape death. Uh, And there are certainly no non-human beings to talk to. And you'll never ultimately see the triumph of good over evil. Yet Tolkien says, deep down in all of us, even when people say, that could never happen, and even when we know that the stories we're reading are fiction and fantasy, There is still something in us attracted to it. There is still something in us that craves for it to be true. Why? Why is it even in our culture we can't get rid of that passion? Well, the Christian answer is that this is some sort of memory trace of ultimate reality. I mean, if we were to go back all the way to the beginning of the story in Genesis, we're told there, aren't we, that we were talking to non-human beings, to God himself, We did have love without parting initially with our Heavenly Father. We didn't have death. There was no evil in the first place to triumph over good. We know that that is ultimate reality, which is the reason why we can't stop wanting it or sensing it or being fascinated by it. 
And so here in this passage, the crowds are saying, the gods have come down to us. Zeus and Hermes are in our midst. Why? Because they'd, they'd heard all of these stories about the gods coming down in human form. These were their legends. And so now they're excited because, oh my goodness, maybe it's actually happening before our very eyes. Maybe we can escape death. Maybe we can see a miracle. Maybe we can break out of the box. Maybe our deepest longings can be fulfilled after all. Here's what Christianity does. Just think about this. The secular world, the world out there says, it's all a fantasy. None of these things that we long for will ever happen. Of course, the old myths, the legends, the, the fairy stories, they always get it kind of wrong. They're always a bit twisted or distorted, you know, wishes and magic and fairies. And here, let's sacrifice to these gods who have come down and maybe they'll do miracles for us. Get it slightly wrong there. But guess what? Jesus Christ is the God who did come down in human form. He came down to break through the barrier between us and the ultimate reality. He made a way for those who believe in him to have their deepest longings fulfilled. Do you realize right now, you can talk to beings that are not human. You can talk to God himself. In fact, some of you are going to do that in a moment when we move back into worship. And in Christ, you will have love without parting. Nothing can separate you from his love for you. You will escape death eventually. You will see the triumph of good over evil. Now, if that is true, if it's true, why wouldn't you want that? Why wouldn't you at least want to explore it a little more closely to see if it's real? Look, if a person says to me, I can't be a Christian, and I say, why? And they say, well, when I see what Christianity teaches, when I see what it offers, I kind of wish it would be true, but it's just too good to be true. And I can say, yeah, that's a problem. But let's talk, because at least you understand what Christianity is. At least you understand what it offers you. But if you don't want Christianity to be true, you don't fully understand it, because it actually fulfills our deepest longings. That's what it promises. And that's what we need to try our hardest to show people.